Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creator Science. It is snowy here in Ohio. I am cozy in my studio and I'm breaking one of my own cardinal rules, which is I am drinking my coffee while I am recording. I don't know how much recording you do of your voice on microphone, but I have noticed that when I drink coffee, I get a little bit smacky. And that's a word that I learned from LinkedIn Learning. Describe, I don't know, there's a whole plethora of mouth sounds that happen (laughs) in the world of audio recording. And smacky is when things just feel a little sticky, a little, the saliva is thick. Anyway, coffee is usually a culprit of that, but I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted to relax a little bit, enjoy myself, enjoy my morning coffee and bring you this episode. Now, you may have heard me say recently that in 2024, one of my priorities for this show, the audio show in particular, is to split the recordings about 50-50 between guest interviews and solo episodes. I have been getting such positive feedback on episodes of the show where it's just me doing Q&A as I'm going to do today, or uh, kind of breaking down a specific topic and sharing how I think about it. So today I'm going to do one of those solo episodes and I'm excited for it. I have a lot of questions today submitted on Twitter and LinkedIn and threads. So we will go through as many as we can, starting with this spicy question from my friend Joe Casabona, who says, how do you feel your posts where you explicitly talk about how much money you make perform engagement wise and perception wise? And why do you think that is? I will jump into that question right after this. As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew, and it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I've felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. 
Okay, welcome back. Once again, Joe's question to kick us off here today. How do you feel your posts where you explicitly talk about how much money you make perform in terms of engagement and perception? And why do you think that is? I have strong opinions on this. I've talked about it a little bit in the past, but it is undeniable that when I share specific numbers in terms of how much I earn through this product or that product or on a monthly basis or an annual basis, they typically perform well engagement-wise. Like they get more impressions, they get more engagement, they get more reach. And I don't love talking about that anymore because what I've realized is that type of post creates envy in the people who see it. It's very easy to make those posts and think, I am so good at capturing and attracting attention. I am a genius. I am so good at this game. And so you just keep doing it. And it, in a way, it, it works. It perpetuates. But it's not a good thing for the world. <laughs> now, there's an argument to be made, which is, is it a good thing for good people to use um, whatever means necessary for a greater good? And I have to ask myself that sometimes. Is it is it worth doing tactics that I don't love because that is a proven way to get the message out there and help more people? And I think there is some truth to that, but I'm using it less and less often because the feeling of envy is not one that I enjoy and it's not one that I want to create in people. You know, I, I don't want people to see numbers instantly compare themselves to those numbers because that's what we do. We compare our own success to the success of others and we benchmark ourselves, we compare ourselves. It's not a kind thing to do, especially the more successful you become. So I think they perform well, Joe, engagement-wise, but perception-wise, I think it's becoming increasingly less appreciated as well. I think people are like, quit talking about this. But with so much noise out there, we need some sign for who do I take seriously? Who do I listen to? Whose advice do I want to follow? Whose perspective do I want to hear? And we typically base the answer of that question in, well, who has the things or has achieved the things that we want? And so when we see our aspirational results achieved by other people, it makes us more likely to listen to that other person, especially if they're saying, and here's how you can do it too. But um, I, I just don't know if that's the relationship I want with people long term. But if I'm not going to use specific numbers, it really becomes a question of how do I get my signal out above the noise so that people know they can, they can trust me and I have something that can help them. Okay, one last thought on this question. I know I'm spending a lot of time on this question in particular, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I also believe that a lot of people love to see other people fall from grace or from the mountaintop. I, I don't know what it is about human. I think it's human nature. I don't think it's anything about the culture right now, but I think there's a part of us that indulges in this schadenfreude of seeing somebody who has achieved something then fall from grace uh, because it makes us feel better. So the more you talk about your numbers, your success, 
even if that performs well, I think it creates an appetite in others to see you fail. Like they want to see you fall from that because that reduces the envy you have built up in them. So, you know, I want to be somebody that people want to keep rooting for, that people want to see be successful. And I don't know if talking about how much money you make over the long term is going to do that. Our next question comes from Alex Hillman on Twitter. He says, what parts of the work do you dislike the most and how do you get them done anyway? I think the tendency as time goes by is to make things more complex to add to the business and everything you add has greater implications than you initially realize. So when you you know, add in, okay, I think I'm going to do sponsorship in my business now. That's not just accepting payment and suddenly there's sponsorship in your newsletter. That's actually adding a whole host of things, which is uh, a process for collecting payment, a process for getting a creative brief, a process for getting that brief uh, approved and then communicating with the sponsor all along the way and after the spot has run. So, you know, we think we're making small additions to our business, but there tends to be a lot of implications to that. And a lot of it is administrative. So a lot of the work that I don't enjoy doing is administrative work, not because the work itself sucks or is hard. It's usually like very simple, fairly quick, but it just adds up. You know, I woke up this morning and I had an email from Gusto that says, hey, time to run payroll. Well, to run payroll... I first had to do my profit first uh, accounting process. Then I ran payroll. Then I uh, did the process of submitting funds to my 401k. Then I paid the contractors. You know, these are all small, easy administrative things, but they add up to like an hour of time here and there. And it's that's twice a month. There's just a whole host of things like that. So on the administrative front, how do I get those things done? Well, for one, I just hired my wife uh, into the business, and now we are we are partners in Creator Science. And her title is general manager. She's going to be doing all things operations. Now, I'm going to have to do a lot of uh, teaching to show her how things are done currently, and then she's going to make those processes better. But ultimately, I hope that removes some cognitive load, so that you know I'm not looking at the email for oh wait, does this. Does this uh, trigger some administrative action I have to do? Now that can be her job. She's the one accountable and responsible for that. So hiring is one way to get it done. The other thing I find is there are different types of energy that I feel throughout the day. In the morning, I typically like to do whatever creative work I have the most energy for because I have more focus, more enthusiasm in the morning And as the day goes by, I have less mental sharpness. I have less creativity. And so administrative tasks can kind of fall towards the end of the day. So you've got to understand your own rhythms and what type of energy this task requires so that you are matching the type of work that needs to be done to the time of day that it makes the most sense. Or, you know, the day of the week. Sometimes you can theme your days to say Tuesday's an administrative day. Or for me, Tuesdays and Thursdays are calls days. I have no expectation I'm going to get any creative work done on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm just talking to people. Monday and Friday, those are creative days. And Wednesday is kind of an administrative day. So it's mostly administrative. 
administrative stuff, response stuff, increasingly like anything that's not creative work, I have less interest in. But, you know, as the business has gotten more complex, there are a lot of aspects to the business that are not creative. I would say the creative work is actually the minority of things that need to be done. Our next question comes from C.A. Azeltine on Twitter. Azeltine, Azeltine. He says, how do you spot a video that will do well? What are the things that signal to you this one will work? And what are some examples of misses you called and what would have made them take off? This is so hard. I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume he's talking about YouTube here. But, you know, a video that will do well, we have some expectation that every video we publish will do well. Because now we have a filter on the front end to say, if we don't believe this can do well, we're not going to make the video. So it's... It's really being in tune with our core audience first and foremost and saying, what do they need? What video doesn't exist? And would they trust from us? But on YouTube, you do really also have to think about the broader viewers, people who have never discovered you before. What would they find interesting if it showed up in their recommended feed? And it's 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 really tough. You know, I, I more and more try to lean into assuming a lot of intelligence in our potential audience and our current audience and saying, if I'm curious about this, I think the audience will be curious about this too. But some videos just don't hit at all. You know, we interviewed Nusair Yassin a few months back. He has a huge audience. I thought having his name, his face in the thumbnail would be really good for us. That video bombed. We recently had Angus Parker on Love that video. I think it's very in-depth, very specific, very tactical. I think it's great for hiring. But Angus's face is behind the scenes of Ali Abdal's business. So, you know, that thumbnail is not as clickable as we would think. We put Ollie in the thumbnail initially, and that didn't do as well as we thought it would. So it's really, really tough. What I do do is I keep a close eye on our metrics shortly after releasing the video. Now, take this with a grain of salt because... Connor, my producer, doesn't um, see this the same way that I do, and he knows YouTube better than I do. But I, I look at YouTube through this, the lens that I look at most platforms, and so I'm looking for patterns. And when we release the video, I am looking at what is the immediate click-through rate on that video? Because I have yet to see a video we release that starts with a very low click-through rate that then becomes a high click-through rate within a matter of hours. Typically, the sample size we get quickly holds true and is usually like a best case scenario. You know, usually click-through rate goes down over time. So when we release a video, I'm seeing how well is this package performing right now? And I can tell pretty early on usually like, is this is this going to fly? Um, but that's not super helpful from the beginning. You know, from the beginning, we are trying to create a package that we think is interesting to a YouTube audience in particular, or uh, a group of people on YouTube. And it's, you know, some people would say, there are a couple things you can do to, to give yourself a better shot. Like there's this term buckets that we learned from Patty Galloway. And it's this idea that on your channel, if you have a type of video that performed well, what if you create a variant of that type of email? So an example of this would be like a versus video series. Mr. Beast does a lot of these, like $1 yacht versus $1 billion yacht. You can take that format and say $1 meal versus $10,000 meal. 
and, and, and think, well, this is a bucket. This versus format is a bucket. Some channels are like, I snuck into uh, this, this place, and that's a bucket for their channel. Another example would be Noah Kagan. You know, he does a lot of, I asked billionaires their greatest regret. I asked billionaires how they made their money. I asked billionaires if it was worth it. That's a content bucket. When that performs well, you have a good ex- expectation that the next one will perform well. Also, you don't even have to look at your own videos to discover buckets that work well. You know, you could look at what Noah's doing and saying, okay, asking millionaires is an interesting idea. Maybe I will do asking veterinarians, asking teachers, asking whatever, or take that same versus type of bucket. This versus that. You can do that on your channel. So generally doing some research of seeing what type of videos are doing well right now in the culture, four different channels, doing your own spin on it, that can work well. But really, again, it all comes down to the package. Do you have a title and thumbnail that is more interesting, more clickable than the seven or nine other packages on the recommended page right now? It's a hard game to play. It's a really hard game to play, but you've got to look at that. Uh, We use something called thumbnailpreview.com, I think. Let me, yeah, thumbnailpreview.com. We take our proposed title, our thumbnail, and it creates a mock-up of here's what that title and thumbnail looks like against other real videos on YouTube. Does this package seem clickable? And that's helped us quite a bit. Next, Roberto Blake asks, what are the myths that hold creators back? And I have a few on my mind. One of them is, I'm too late. I hear this all the time. And I've thought it myself. You know, it is too late for me to dive in and do this platform or do this thing or become a creator. Just not true. There are people breaking through every single day, people getting started every single day. The only thing that idea of I'm too late will do is further delay you. And then, you know, a year from now, you'll look back and be like, gosh, I wish I would have started a year ago. So that's the number one myth, I think, that holds people back. I also think people will make declarations like uh, email is dead, podcasting is dead, this platform is dead, that platform is dead. Also, almost never true. What that usually means is the current or most recent meta is dead. Meta meaning what is the macro trend for how this platform is used. So on on Twitter, probably a year or two ago, it was really popular to templatize certain tweet hooks that were doing well and write your own. That meta is dead right now. Twitter is down, but I don't think Twitter is dead. I think these platforms go through cycles of here is what can become new and popular on this platform right now, or probably more accurately said, the stuff that has been working is no longer working. So we have to find the new meta, the new thing that works well. But thinking that a platform is dead is is not helpful. And usually that moment where people think things are dead is a time when there is opportunity for a new content type to take hold. The last one I'll throw out is this myth that you have to be everywhere at once, everywhere all the time. It's just not practical. Unless you have a huge team and or great processes, there's just no way that you can be on all the platforms all the time and be successful on all of them. It takes time to build up to that place. And again, it's probably going to take people and processes that you don't have in place right now. So I would really encourage you to focus in one place until you're really crushing that and then add on new platforms. 
Jovan asks for some tips for starting a podcast on YouTube. How do you find your guests? What is your preparation for podcast episodes? And any successes and challenges in creating podcast episodes? This is kind of a loaded question because he specifically asks for tips for starting a podcast on YouTube. But I think, you know, there's a couple of questions in here, which is tips for starting a podcast and podcasting on YouTube. So I have, I have several opinions here. I'm going to break that question down into those two areas, even if that's not quite the spirit of the question, because I think it will help people. I, I was having a conversation this week with a friend of mine who's thinking about launching a podcast, and I had a lot of strong opinions that I put in my newsletter this past weekend. So sorry if you read this. I'm going to repeat some of it. If you don't read the newsletter, you should sign up at creatorscience.com. It's free, and it's very good. But he asks, you know, what would I do if I was starting a podcast in 2024? And here are a few things. I would avoid the interview format. I think interviews are oversaturated, overdone. And really the issue is people aren't creating differentiated shows with their interviews. They just think that, well, I'm going to interview big names about their big success. And that is overdone, has done so much. Why would I listen to a show talking to big names when I could listen, like a new show, when I could listen to some of the existing shows that have a ton of practice and more access, probably, you know, uh, Rich Roll, Tim Ferriss, Lewis Howes, Lex Friedman, all these people are interviewing huge names. Maybe you can get some of the same names on your show, but are you going to do as good of a job as those people? I just think the opportunity for new podcasters is to innovate on the format and not do interviews as much. In fact, if I were starting over today, I would probably start with the premise of being a solo show. Episodes like this, I think, you know, for podcasts, you need to build the rapport with your listeners that they're really listening to the show for you. Even if somebody listens to your show because they like the guest, the research has shown that someone needs to listen to three of your episodes before they become a regular listener. I'm only going to listen to three of your episodes if I like you as a host, as an interviewer, or you as a host, as a person. If I'm just listening to an episode of your show for the guest, I might not listen to the second one, which means I'm not going to become a regular listener. So if you create a solo show, then you know the people listening to this like me. And I think it's a unique format. I also think that most shows can be and should be shorter. It's an easier commitment to get someone to commit to, to listen to a 20 minute show than a 90 minute show. And the hardest thing as a podcaster to do, if you're getting started is get someone to click play for the first time. Am I going to click play if the episode's 20 minutes or 90 minutes, which one am I more likely to sign up for? I think shorter shows are an opportunity space in podcasting. Solo shows are an opportunity space. Co-hosted shows are an opportunity space. A lot of people listen to podcasts because they want to feel or already feel close to the host or hosts. They kind of have this, this relationship to the person they're listening to. And you can make that listening experience even more personal and fun and close when there is real rapport that I'm listening to. When you listen to a show that has co-hosts who are friends, you feel like you are friends with those two people because they are talking as friends. You feel like you're in the conversation. That's hard to do with a guest because a lot of times you've never met the guest. You don't have existing rapport with the guest. 
you don't have the same energy as you would with a friend. So having a co-host, not only does it lower some of the prep that you have to do because there's, there's more grace, there's more space for you guys to riff and have fun and have inside jokes, but it also creates this feeling of, I am friends with these people. And I'm seeing a lot of shows that have co-hosts grow quickly because of that dynamic. I also recommend in your title and thumbnail, avoid using your name and face. Because in podcasting, this is the hardest medium to grow. Your name and face is interesting to people who already know you. It means nothing to people who don't know you. So if you're trying to get new listeners, dominating the package of the show, the title and, and artwork with your name and face does nothing to a new listener. You're much better off titling the show something that's related to the unique, differentiated premise of the show. Let me know as a listener why I should care, why I would want to listen. That should be in the, the title and backed up in the artwork. And remember, your artwork in podcasting is so small in so many places. You don't need to be intricate. You need to say, what is the one thing I want to emphasize in this artwork when it's at its smallest and make that the majority of the artwork. This show, it's mostly text on the regular show artwork. You just see the name. And even though I'm probably going to redo that artwork in 2024, it's still going to be focused on the name. Now back to Joven's question about starting a podcast on YouTube. Here's the mistake I see a lot of people make. Doing a podcast on YouTube is really hard, first of all. Let's let's start there. <laughs> let's start with the idea that doing a podcast is so hard on YouTube as a way to build the channel. The people who do podcasting well on YouTube typically are interviewing guests in studio, and often it's not how they build the channel. It's a lot of times like, I did well on YouTube, I have an audience, now I'm going to add a podcast in the mix because you already like me, you already trust me, I already have an audience. Starting from zero and saying, hey, here's a long video in terms of average length from somebody you've never heard of. And for a lot of people, they can't afford the in-studio thing, so you're doing a remote video. You know, how often do you watch 60-minute side-by-side Zoom recordings on YouTube? Never. It's just, it's so hard to make a good interview product on YouTube and grow the channel that way. So if you're going to do it, you have to ask yourself, what will make this an engaging viewing experience? And for us, the answer was twofold. One, we had to put a lot of time and effort into the production, the edit of the show. And two, we put a lot of focus in the package of each video the title, the thumbnail, how we're positioning this video on the for you or recommended areas so that people click it and want to watch it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work ahead of time. We are thinking about the package of the video before we even reach out to the guest. We're thinking about the package of the video before I conduct the interview. And ultimately, the package is what decides whether the video gets seen and watched. It's really, really hard. So, you know, the best advice is to get started and then be resilient and continuously push the boundaries of what you can do to make a compelling package and a great viewing experience. Because if you make a great package, you'll see it in your click-through rate. People will be clicking. Then the question is, how long are they watching? If they're clicking, but they're not watching, you got to improve the editing. If they're not clicking, you've got to improve the package. Our next question comes from Brett. He says, I'd love to hear about a few different $100,000 offer stacks and product ecosystems you like. Example, group coaching plus digital product, etc." 
I'm going to answer that question right after a quick break for our sponsors. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot creator. Welcome back. And once again, Brett had just asked, I'd love to hear about a few different $100,000 offer stacks and product ecosystems you like. All right. So here's two things that I think about. I think about your revenue model in two halves, direct revenue and indirect revenue. Direct revenue is transactions happening between you and your audience directly. You are selling something, they are buying it. You are in control of that product quality and that experience. Examples are digital products, courses, memberships, things like that. Then there's indirect revenue, which has a third party involved. Usually it's a third party's product that you are recommending and therefore, you know, you are deflecting or uh, directing the attention and trust that your audience has in you towards somebody else's product. You don't have control over the product. You don't have full control over the experience. 
there's nothing wrong with indirect revenue. In fact, it's a it's a great revenue stream, especially if you're recommending products that you use and love and you don't ever plan to produce yourself. You know, I recommend this. Uh, I recommend ConvertKit as a software product. I'm an affiliate for ConvertKit. I'm never going to build an email software product. At least that's not in the plans right now. So I'm using the product. I recommend the product because I'm using it. It's not only I'm recommending it, I'm, I'm literally using it myself. So I'm, I'm walking the talk there. There are big benefits to having indirect revenue as well as direct revenue. That being said, my recommendation to creators is to focus first on your means of direct revenue because that is within your control in terms of the customer experience. And also, sometimes indirect revenue is taken away from you without even realizing it. You know, maybe the economy goes down, so sponsorship budgets are slashed, and now you're not, you don't have money coming in. Or someone says, hey, it's been great having you as an affiliate partner, but we're actually getting rid of our affiliate program. When you have a direct relationship to your audience, you can control the product quality, the product experience, and you know that's not gonna be taken away from you. So I actually like looking at businesses that have a very simple product stack to get to $100,000 or far above that. I think I diversified my product stack, let alone my revenue model, but I diversified my product stack too quickly because what people often do is they launch a thing, it sells, they think, wow, that was great. I'm going to do that again. They make a new thing and launch a new thing. And suddenly, six months later, 12 months later, two years later, you have a whole bunch of different products. None of them are selling actively day-to-day, week-to-week because your sales came on the launch. And so you have all these assets, but they're not doing much for you. After the initial launch, you're not sure how to sell them. They're just kind of sitting on the shelf getting more stale and less relevant over time. I'm most impressed by the businesses that say, okay, here is what the premise of my overall business is. I'm going to create one product, one experience that is so good, I'm going to keep iterating it over time. And not only is that creating revenue, but that product experience is so good that it's actually building equity in the overall business. Let me give you some examples. Notion Mastery by Marie Poulin. Ship 30 for 30 by Dickie Bush, Building a Second Brain by Tiago Forte, Rite of Passage by David Perel, Part-Time YouTuber Academy by Ali Abdal. All these programs were launched years ago, still exist and get better and better over time. And those products have been so successful that they've just, they've actually grown the overall business because people talk about Ship 30 for 30 as this amazing product, which brings new attention to the brand, which brings in more students. So a lot of people will launch these products. The launch is good. They stop talking about the product. That product is no longer doing anything to bring new attention to the brand as a whole or bring new students into the ecosystem or new customers to the product. So I look at what are the businesses that are so in touch with their audience, with what they are promising as a brand, that they have built one great product, one signature product is what I call it, that's aligned with the brand, and they just double down on making that awesome. Now, I do think there's space. If you do have a great signature product, a lot of times that will be you know, one of the higher priced products in your ecosystem. Higher priced is relative, is subjective, but usually your signature product is the highest priced thing in your product suite. And so there's room to create a product that's a little bit lower priced 
but in alignment with that signature product to give people who are a little bit more hesitant to invest to that level a taste of what you're able to do. You know, it might be a challenge, a short course, uh, a digital resource, something that is less expensive that I can invest in, have a good experience with. And now I have even more trust that if I were to invest in your signature product, I'm going to have a good experience. So I think the most elegant, beautiful business models have one, maybe two products that are means of direct revenue. And once you have that, you can start looking at indirect sources saying, you know, I am creating content. I have an audience. Now I'm going to bring in sponsorships or I'm going to look at affiliates where it makes sense. But I'd really start with that signature product. What is the product that completely aligns with your audience, who you're trying to serve and what you're trying to do? In my world, currently it's the lab, you know, creator science, the business is helping people become professional creators. The lab is my membership community, helping professional creators connect and grow together. Actually, the more I've thought about it, that product is almost beyond the real promise of the business. It's actually helping people who have already achieved the promise of the business do better. So this year I'm developing creator school, this membership that helps people become professional creators. So now I'm serving the entire customer journey of I am just getting started as a creator to I am a professional creator and I'm trying to do more. So I think a year from now, two years from now, people are going to look at creator school as the signature product inside the creator science world. But it took me a lot of years of figuring this all out to realize I should have started with just one product and really doubled down on making that awesome, amazing, and scalable. Cameron Armstrong asks, where do you want to take creator science, your content in general? Is there something you want to do next, but you aren't in a position to make happen yet? Thanks for the uh, the personal question on on my business. Yeah, I the next step for me is writing a book. It's something I've always wanted to do. I have an agreement in place with a team, a publisher that's going to help me. I don't have a specific timeline yet, but the next step is writing a book. The hard thing about writing a book in the space, you know, assuming that I'm going to write a book for creators, it makes sense to do that. It would be very, very easy to write a book that becomes instantly obsolete and out of date because it focuses too much on specific platforms or tactics or whatever. So I want to write a book that is useful for years and years and years and planning the premise of the book so that it's not outdated but still useful is a little bit of a challenge. I I have some ideas but it hasn't become completely lucid just yet, so I'm not quite in a position to make it happen, but I have all of the ducks in a row once I am. Now I will also say I just mentioned Creator School, this membership that helps people become professional creators. That's in progress, but there's also a second product that I'm developing this year and I'm actually launching before Creator School and that is this templatized version of my Notion setup because I have done so much to leverage Notion as this core system in my entire creator business. I could not do what I do without the system I have built in Notion, systems I have built in Notion. And I've shown it to people, they drool over it, they ask if they can have it. I am making a templatized version of that to make available here soon. So that's the direction of Creator Science this year, launching that templated pack of systems, launching Creator School, and then it's full steam ahead on just making valuable free content. Our next question comes from Alan C. Paul. He says, I want to know how building a community differs from building an audience. 
I'll answer that question after one last quick break for our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. All right, we are back. No more ad breaks until this episode is over. Let's see how much gas I got left in the tank. Starting with this question from Alan C. Paul, asking how building a community differs from building an audience. Now, some people hearing this may think community means this digital space as a product, bringing people together. To me, that's a membership. If it's a paid product, that is a membership where a community aspect is a core value proposition. But I want to abstract this a little bit more. I think the way you define community is a group of people who have a common interest. I also think a community denotes this connection between members of the network rather than a one-to-one relationship many times. Audience to me means I have a one-to-one relationship with a bunch of people, but those people aren't necessarily connecting to each other. So if you want to build a community instead of an audience, the answer is in helping people in your audience connect to each other. Now you have what would pass as a community. Some people use this word very, very loosely in place of audience because they just don't like calling their followers an audience. I get that, but I don't think it's exactly intellectually honest. Uh, To me, If you are going to create a community, it is really about creating a group of people who connect to, talk to, speak with, respect each other. And you can do that by creating a digital community space, or you can do that in your actions. You know, I think the more you communicate with your people in the comment section, in the replies, in email, the more that you show, hey, this is a conversation. This is not a monologue from me to you. This is a conversation between me and you and also you and you and you and you and you. So it's it's figuring out how do I get this to be more of a conversation between me, my people, and in between the people, you know, creating space for that. Marcella asks, how do you manage the ups and downs of creator life in terms of mindset and action? Incredible question. Very hard to answer, to be honest with you. In a, in a former life, I was building a software startup. 
And the ups and downs of that felt a lot more extreme than the creator world. And I, I have a point for bringing up the story, so stick with me. When the ups and downs were extreme in that business, the downs, I think, I think we often feel the downs more painfully than we feel joyful at the ups. And so to make the downs less painful, in the past, I have like emotionally numbed to all extremes. And numbing yourself to negative extremes, I think by default, numbs you to the positives too. I think the ideal would be to say, you know, I feel the best on the highs and the lows. I don't feel that bad. But the reality of the human experience, I think, is you have to feel all the things to appreciate them. You know, there's the the idea the sweet isn't as sweet without the sour. So you have to um, you have to experience it, but you also have to separate it from your sense of self-worth. You know, it's hard for me to deny just how much better I feel when things are going well. When things are going well, I feel great. I am associating the outcome of my work, the, the positive outcomes in the business. I'm associating them with myself. And by the same token, when things are going bad, I feel bad. I'm associating the failures with myself. But really, you got to separate your sense of self-worth from the outcomes of what you're doing. And that's hard to do. And even when you achieve it, it's very easy to slip back and, and get back into those old patterns. So I think the first thing is just being aware and intellectually saying, I am not the outcome of my work. And hopefully you can remember that when things are going bad. Hopefully you can also remember when things are going good, because a lot of times people get on such a win streak. They think they're the best thing since sliced bread. They lose grip of reality a little bit. They forget what got them there in the first place. And now they're set up for a fall. So, you know, the best way to manage this is to separate from it, acknowledge it, appreciate it, bask in it, uh, taste the bitterness of it, but don't let any aspect of it affect you too long and have a good support system. You know, it's probably not a coincidence that the business has been on a steep upwards trajectory since I've been in a stable relationship. My wife, uh, before she joined the business, you know, for years, has been such a great supporter of me and the work that I do that even when I'm feeling down, you know, she's there. And that helps a lot. You may not have a partner, you may not have a spouse, but you can have friends, you can have family. Find a support system that helps you remember, oh, I'm not my work. I have worth outside of my work. And in, when things in the work are not doing well, doesn't mean that I am worthless. Believe it or not, all those questions had come from Twitter. So we're going to move on now to threads and then LinkedIn. And I want to say, again, I am bullish on threads right now. If you're not putting time into threads, I would consider it as a place to put some time into. What I have noticed is that Meta, the parent company, is doing a really good job of displaying threads posts, both in Facebook and in Instagram. And there's... there's more opportunity to uh, have your content seen by people you're not directly connected to because they're just trying to push good content that gets good engagement. And so I think that this is the time that some of the biggest accounts we come to know on threads are being built. And if you're not seeing uh, success on Twitter, this may be a better alternative. Same with LinkedIn. But really, 
things you're writing on Twitter, things you're writing on LinkedIn, you could cross post them to threads and you're still going to be getting some of the benefit of the tailwinds on that platform right now. Our first question comes from Profnesser. It's almost Professor, Profnesser. He says, how about your hours? How are you splitting your time across channels and work and family? I think I've actually been a little bit better during the week of having like regular work hours. You know, my work hours start once I start working in the morning, which is typically eight or nine. And, and I've been getting just tired and, and calling it quits for the most part around five. I still don't think I have great non-work uh, hygiene, we'll call it, you know, where like after the work day, I, I stop thinking about work. I stop doing all things work. I'm still very active on my phone in nights and weekends. So I, I need to have even more of a barrier there, but it's getting easier. And it's mostly just driven by the fact that as I get older, I don't have the same endless energy to just throw at work. I have more complexities in my life. I have more commitments, things that I love. My my wife, my dogs, you know, we're, we're having a baby this year. Uh, the house takes a lot of maintenance. So there's just a lot of stuff that is in my life. Um, I've been, I've been doing a lot with my fitness lately. I started working with my body tutor. Is that right? My body tutor. Yeah. My body tutor. And I've lost close to 13 pounds, but that's taken a lot of work. That's a lot of energy and exercise every day to get to that point, but that's a priority. So it's easier to have, you know, spend less time working when you have more priorities outside of work. still a lot of work though. I would say that I probably outwork most people. Maureen says, take us back in time before you were the J Klaus. That's hilarious to me. It's never going to not be weird to think that people see me as a, as a thing, you know? Anyway, she says, take us back in time before you were the J Klaus. Would love to know what you would tell your younger self, especially when it comes to staying the course and keeping the faith. You know, a mindset that I had, even when I got started on this, was basically that failure wasn't an option. Uh... I have always assumed and really I would say like known that this would work. I just had to figure out how. And I think that's powerful. You know, a, a few months ago, I put a tweet out and I said, do you believe in you? This is a quote that I got from Deion Sanders. I heard him say it in the, the locker room to the uh, uh, Colorado football team. He says, do you believe in you? And I put that tweet out and so many people said no. And it's, it, that just like, that like breaks my heart because if you don't believe in you, it won't happen for you. And I think things have happened for me because I did believe. I didn't know that this specific thing or that specific thing was going to work, but I knew that I could figure it out. And with enough time and enough work at it, I would figure it out. And I think that's the only way that this has worked for me. You know, there are people that have done this much faster than I have. I'm entering year seven now in doing this. And I haven't had big breakthrough moments most of the time. You know, lately, maybe a couple. But for the first five years, maybe six years, like, no, there were no big breakthrough moments. It was just tiny little tweaks. Because I'm constantly looking at, is this working as well as I want it to? If not, what can I change to try to make it better? Change a little bit. See, did that work? You know, it's this experimentality that I've talked about in the past, experimenting with things, figuring out what gets the results that I want. So what I would say to my younger self is believe this will happen for you. 
you know, hold loosely the how. You may not know yet how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, but if you believe it will happen and you are acting in accordance with that, you are doing things to try, figure new things out, try things that are new, look at the results, see if it's working. At some point, time is on your side. It's just going to happen. So stick with it because what I see is most people, even talented people, people who are seeing results, most people quit. The people who make it through don't quit. If you are willing to not quit and get better and be intellectually honest about whether you are getting better, you will break through. Next, we have a question from one of the newest members of the lab, Iman. She says, I want to behind the scenes of your podcast production, workflow, how you choose guests, how you promo and grow your podcast, etc." Well, growing a podcast is really hard. <laughs> I don't know that I'm great at growing the podcast. The only way that I consistently get new listeners to the show is by growing everything else around the podcast and making those people aware that I have a podcast. Basically, my goal is to convert email viewers into podcast listeners and everything else leads to email. So it's like social media leads to email, email leads to podcast is kind of the strategy. But it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard to get people to listen to podcasts, especially if they don't already listen to podcasts. And add a new one to the rotation is just a big ask. So, you know, how I promo it is really through my own channels. There's not a whole lot more I can do. I should be doing a lot more in terms of talking about the show on Twitter, on Instagram, everywhere else. I'm going to try to do more of that this year because I tend to publish the episode, put it out in email, maybe tweet about it once, but I'm rarely sharing it on LinkedIn. I rarely share it on Instagram. I have found that the video episodes, I do a pretty good job of promoting because we cut a video trailer and that trailer typically performs fairly well on Twitter and LinkedIn. So those episodes do okay. The other thing that I've found to work fairly well on LinkedIn in particular is take a screenshot of the episode page in Spotify and share that when talking about the episode that gets people thinking like this is a podcast episode and I can find it on Spotify and I know what the title is. That has been okay. But in terms of podcast production, it looks a lot like me reaching out to a guest with a cold email, including a link to schedule. I've shared the email template before. It's basically like the first paragraph is me connecting with the guest, telling them why I'm reaching out to them, uh, a very personalized, direct, here's what I like about your work. Then I ask them, hey, would you be open to doing a 45-minute podcast episode with me? Then I describe the show and hit some of the social proof points, like it's had these guests, it's part of this network, it's had this many downloads. And then I say, and if you want to schedule, here's how you can do it. No pressure, no expectation. I am on your schedule. If they schedule, then it uh, automatically creates a page in my Notion database because I have a Zap set up where... If you schedule through Savvy Cal, that kicks off an automation to create a page in my Notion database. So at some point I go into that Notion database and I do my prep work for the episode, uh, writing questions I'm thinking about. Usually my prep is pretty light because now selecting guests a lot of time comes from my own curiosity and desire to talk to somebody, which means I already know them fairly well and have a specific reason why I want to talk to them. But I will listen to like two podcast episodes they've done, one that's very recent, one that's a little bit older to get a sense for the trajectory of the work for the last couple of years. And I'm filtering for 
you know, hosts that I trust to conduct good interviews when I listen to those episodes. I do the interview. Um, if it's an audio show, my audio engineer takes that and mixes most of it together. He mix, mixes those two interview files into one single file, and then I edit that one single file and record voiceover ahead of time, record some uh, voiceover at the mid-rolls, and he mixes that, and it's done. Maybe that's like kind of too quick of an overview, but um, it's not too, too hard. I do have a full course on my podcast operations called Podcasts Like the Pros. Uh, I believe that's linked in the show notes. You can just search Podcasts Like the Pros to find it. And I go in-depth exactly how I do all of this if you do want to learn from my specific um, process. Now, Iman is in is in uh, the lab, so she gets that as part of her lab membership. But if you're listening to this and you want to learn about podcasting, Podcasts Like the Pros can help a lot. Don't wonder, explore, ask. I would like a breakdown from your point of view of 2024 opportunities for looking to break into the creator economy of starting from zero. I think the greatest opportunity for people to get into the creator economy today is to actually be an apprentice or an employee of a creator, ideally on a small team. So you get a lot of FaceTime, a lot of direct interaction. There is no better accelerator for your own creator journey than working inside of the business of another creator because you just get so much insight so quickly. Uh, I feel like when I worked with Pat at SPI, Pat Flynn, that was later than would have been ideal in my journey. Ideally, it would have been much earlier because by the time I was there, I'd already done so much in my own business that I didn't learn as much as I would have if I would have done it years earlier. So apprenticing with another creator, I think, is the best thing that you can do. If you want to um, build a new skill set, I would look into thumbnail design and video editing. Those are two areas where there is much more demand than supply right now for quality work. So I, I think you can build a great solo business delivering great thumbnails or video editing if you do good work. I think I think there's so much demand out there. So that's the skill that I would try to pick up if I wanted to work directly for a creator. Otherwise, I'll try to be kind of a generalist doing a lot of the administrative stuff and uh, uh, more like repeatable tasks in the business. But yeah, working with a creator is definitely the way I would start today. Let's journey on over to the land of LinkedIn. We have a great question from my friend Sam Brown saying, what do you wish you'd done differently at every stage of building your business? It's hard for me to go back to like every stage because how do we define the stage? But here's something that I wish I would have done a little bit differently. My wife is joining the business this year as uh, the general manager of the business, handling a lot of the operations. I wish I would have done that earlier. We talked about this actually in my recent conversation with Angus Parker, Ollie Abdal's general manager, but his description of a mistake a lot of creators make is exactly what I did, which is to hire a bunch of specialists first. And as a creator, if you hire the specialists, now you are managing specialists as well. So like you have your work as a creator, the creative work, followed by management work, managing specialists, followed by administrative work just in the business anyway. So you're wearing a lot of hats in that standpoint still. And the first thing we have to do with Mal joining the company is I'm going to have to train her on all these systems that I've put together in the business. And there's a lot of them. Whereas if my first hire would have been a more generalist position, maybe a general manager first, that person could have built a lot of the systems. That person could have trained the specialists and there is no training involved from me anymore. I'm just focused on the creative work. So I, I think I probably would have hired a generalist first 
to do a lot of the operations rather than these specialist roles. But it's hard because I had specialized work that needed to be done and I had a finite budget. So, you know, I needed to hire, I I couldn't edit. I needed to hire an editor. There's a world where your generalist could also learn editing in the beginning before, before they hire a specialist in editing, but that's not the path I took. So that's the biggest probably thing I would do differently is change who I hired first to go with basically hiring a right hand. Um, I wish I would have, as I, as I shared earlier, I wish I would have simplified my product stack, not focus so much time on building and launching new products, but to make one really, really great. But it took me a long time to figure out that I wanted to do this educating creators thing. And so I just wandered around for way too long. I wish I would have narrowed in on my premise sooner and been more efficient all along the way. But there's some degree of waste and some degree of figuring things out that everyone's going to go through. Let's see if anything else comes to mind. Anything else I regret and wish I would have done a little bit differently. Maybe designing the show to not be so interview focused. As I shared, I think I think having a co-host could have been fun. It's not too late to do that, but I am kind of locked into a format. And then at this point with with the show having as much uh, progress and success as it has, what does a co-host look like in terms of revenue share and all that? Logistics just become a little bit challenging. So, oh, one last thing I will share. I wish I wouldn't have tried to do all platforms all at once so quickly. I've been posting on like every social platform, doing YouTube, doing podcasting, doing email. I've been doing all the things for forever. It's been so hard. Things are starting to break through everywhere at the same time, but it's been so hard to push all those boulders uphill at once. I wish I would have focused on one platform in the beginning. And, you know, the other thing I've been sharing a lot lately is if you want to have email in your business, which I think everybody should, That doesn't mean that you have to make a newsletter every week. You could create a great email course, a great evergreen newsletter where you write a series of really great emails and then you focus on your discovery platforms, your social media, your YouTube. I wish I would have done that in the beginning too because I've spent so much time writing hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of newsletter issues that are all just collecting dust in the back catalog. I wish I would have been more efficient with how I organized and done an evergreen newsletter first. Jacob asks, how do you build momentum again when feeling stuck? I think about momentum a lot. Momentum is a powerful force. Once you have momentum, it's difficult to stop. You know, think about a heavy truck rolling downhill. Once it has momentum, that's a lot of force moving forward. It's hard to even get it to stop. And I think in business, momentum can be just as powerful. But it's also difficult to get momentum started. You know, that's what makes it so powerful. So... When it comes to creating momentum, it's kind of a catch-22. But to create momentum, you need to show momentum. People aren't all wired to be like early adopters. That's why there's an adoption curve. You have earlier adopters. You have uh, uh, the chasm of people who don't want to adopt something new yet. And then you have the majority, people who are like, okay, this has been tested. This is safe. I'll, I'll do that. Most people don't want to be the first people at a party. They want to come when the party's in progress. They know that it's a good time. So for your work, if you're trying to generate momentum, for most people to want to join, they need to know that this has been tested, this is safe, this is fun. 
And so you need to create the perception that this party is in progress in order to get people to the party so that they can tell other people that the party is in progress. So the way I think about this is you need to be really efficient with showcasing signals of progress. You know, you should be sharing client wins, customer wins, the kind words people are saying. You should be sharing milestones you're hitting. You should be sharing any signal of progress that can show your potential audience. People are trying this. People are paying attention. People are having a good time. They're having good outcomes. Now, if you're personally not feeling energized to do something, that's a little bit of a different conversation. And it's similar though. You need to create some momentum, some forward momentum. When I'm feeling really stuck, and I was feeling pretty stuck at the end of the year because I took like two weeks off entirely. And then I started to feel so disconnected from the business. I'm like, how do I even plug back in? Small, small wins is what you want. Small things that you can do to push the ball forward, to feel like we're making progress again. For me, sometimes it's washing the dishes. It's making the bed. It's taking the dogs out. It's going for a walk. Doing very easily achievable things to start to feel like, all right, we're moving forward, making progress. Things are happening. Uh, I got a little bit ahead on the podcast production because I edited an episode and I thought, let me just do it again. I have the energy for this. Let me do another one. And the more ahead of schedule you get, the easier it is to continue to stay ahead of schedule. You know, there's less pressure of a deadline. So easily achievable, small things, get some of those done. You'll feel energy. And again, if you're trying to create public momentum, you got to showcase signals of progress. I think I've got energy for two more questions here. So we'll start with this question from Katie Allred on LinkedIn that got a lot of thumbs up. She says, how do you become known for something else? I'm looking to make a pivot. My name is synonymous with what I used to do, but I'm looking to change. This comes up a lot as well. And so there are three options, in my opinion, for making a pivot. Number one is a hard pivot. Number two is a slow pivot. And number three is completely starting over. So here's how I think about that. The hard pivot is the fastest and riskiest path forward. A hard pivot means you would just start going in a new direction with little or no warning and let people to continue to choose to follow along or not. You know, this is changing your bio, changing your artwork, changing your content, just making the change, not really announcing it, just doing it. It's kind of like a rip the bandaid approach. People will get confused by this. They'll probably get lost in some cases. They're like, who, who is this? What is this? How did I get here? Why is she talking about this now? Hard pivots are tough on social media because people don't unfollow as much as they used to. Instead of unfollowing you when you start sharing stuff that's no longer interesting, we're just going to stop engaging. And in the eyes of the algorithm, indifference to your content is basically death. If, if I'm no longer interested in the direction you're heading but I don't unfollow you. I just see your content and don't engage with it. That signals to an algorithm. This isn't content that their audience likes. And so it's going to stop getting spread. Uh, You'll quickly lose visibility on that platform. So now you've destroyed the value that you created and it may be hard to get it back. So I don't recommend a hard pivot. Then you have the slow pivot. If your new direction is relevant to some subset of your existing audience, this is what I recommend, a slow pivot. If you think about you know niche A and niche B as circles, there might be some overlap in the Venn diagram. People who are in your current audience, niche A, that also care about niche B. 
So you want to start by kind of talking to those people. You'll continue to get, get traction with that audience. And you'll start attracting a new audience for this new niche. And over time, you kind of move your content closer and closer to that side of the spectrum. And you should be able to maintain engagement, a good percentage of your audience, and find yourself in a new niche. But these slow pivots don't take just days or weeks. They take months, maybe even years. You know, very, very slow. It's, it's, it's probably the path that I recommend for most people. Now, the third path, starting over, sometimes this is unavoidable. If you don't see overlap between the people who are paying attention to your, your content now and the people who need your new content, it's probably best to start over completely. Instead of taking a hard pivot and destroying the value that you've created in your current accounts, try building a new set of accounts from scratch in that new niche. This is also a great way to test whether this new idea has any legs before making drastic changes. You know, if you, if you think that maybe I want to do a slow pivot, you could actually start a new account and kind of test things, see how it goes. But starting over is really what you want to do when you don't see overlap between your new ideal audience and your current audience. The great thing about starting over, though, this also gives you the option or the opportunity to capture some of the value that you've already created. If there's no overlap between your existing audience and the people that you want to talk to, there's probably some value in your existing audience to somebody. You might be able to sell your accounts, the email list, whatever, to someone else who wants to continue talking to the audience that you're trying to leave. So slow pivot is my number one recommendation, unless there's no overlap, in which case I would say start over and try to capture some of the value you've created in that existing audience. Last question is from Eric Matthews. Eric, you've been super supportive on LinkedIn. I appreciate you. Sorry for leaving your question to last, and it's a hard one. Of course, I leave a hard question to ask. He says, here's the thing that always confuses me. I know the value of collecting and analyzing data. It's a great way to know what content is landing and when to change course. But when you're early in your journey, how do you distinguish between content that isn't landing because it's awful and great content that just isn't being shown to enough people yet? There's so little data to analyze. Example, did the four likes I got on this post mean I shouldn't write about that topic as much? Or is that a good amount of engagement given the size of the audience? Really tough question and really good question, Eric. In the beginning, when you aren't reaching many people, you're not going to get much engagement. It's just a numbers game. So it's hard to know, is what I'm creating good? <laughs> you know, is it good or not? And so what I would look at is, I use this, this term signals of progress a lot. I would, I would look for signals of progress, and that is engagement relative to past posts. If I got four likes on this post, is that more or less than I typically get? And then use your impression total as kind of a, uh, a control. You know, if, if you got fewer likes on this post, but you also got you know, relatively fewer engagement or fewer impressions, then that's explainable. If you got the same number of impressions and fewer likes, then that's probably a comment on how well this is resonating. Again, at, in the beginning, beginning, this is still such little data that it's hard to say, in which case you've got to rely on your taste and intuition. Your taste and intuition is going to get better over time. But ideally, you are so in touch with your audience that you know if the right people saw this, it should have an impact on them. 
And maybe you reach out to those people. Maybe you send those people a message. Maybe you keep a list, a literal list of people who seem like they're exactly like your target audience. And you build relationships with them. And you ask them, hey, this thing I just wrote, does this make sense to you? Does, is this helpful? Does this resonate with you? That can help you sharpen your intuition. Because if your intuition says it's good and the audience says it's bad, that's going to change your intuition. That's going to change your taste. So in the beginning, you know, be kind to yourself, be patient, compare your metrics to your own metrics only. Use that as much as you can. But if you're not even getting enough response to make any decision there, really try to form direct one-on-one relationships with people who fit your target audience avatar and get their feedback and tell them like, listen, listen, I see you as someone that fits the persona of who I'm trying to reach. I'm not trying to pitch you on anything. I'm not trying to sell you on anything. I'm just hoping you can help be my compass. Would you mind taking a look at this and letting me know if this sounds right to you, if this is helpful, what you think about it? That's the approach that I would take. Okay, my friend, I have run out of gas. I'm going to get on with the rest of my day. I hope you enjoyed this Q&A episode. I love hearing from people whether this is something they enjoy or not. So tag me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. And by Instagram, I also mean threads. Uh, Or if I'm on LinkedIn, wherever. Wherever you like to spend your time, tag me. I'm probably active there. Let me know if you like this episode, if you want to see more of it. I will be back next week with a new episode. Uh, If you really enjoyed this episode, by the way, you can leave a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Apple reviews are looking good. Spotify reviews could use some work. So get in there. Let me know what you're thinking. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye.